This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to Script to Screen Bombshell. Our audience got a chance to watch Bombshell. Thank you so much to Lionsgate. They let us watch the movie a month before its release for our Santa Barbara patrons. Our guest tonight directed the Austin Powers trilogy, Meet the Parents, uh, Emmys for Recounting Game Change, Sarah Palin's story. He also took on Hollywood blacklisting with the movie Trumbo and explored the passage of civil rights in the movie all the way starring Bryan Cranston. But more importantly, today he directed Bombshell, a film that tells the story of the women of the Fox News Channel who took on an organization that not only covered up sexual harassment, facilitated it. Uh, and also, I think more importantly, lets the audience feel the experience of what it's like to be sexual harassed, put it in the character's mind. Um, so thanks so much for coming back for your third time. <laughs> yeah, it's great to be back. I always like talking here. All right, so let's go back Clearly, to the beginning. Clearly, there's a reason. This crowd is so... I love this. <laughs> uh, let's go back to the beginning of the process. Charles Randolph wrote this as a spec script, and for yours who don't know, that's someone who tries to write a script in hopes of selling it. It found in the ways of Charlize Theron. This was before the Me Too scandal and the Harvey, you know, the Harvey Weinstein so, Jay, what made you want to come on this project when Charlie's approached yeah. you? You know, one slight adjustment to that. I think he sold it on a spec pitch, and Annapurna bought it, and he wrote it on, on commission for Annapurna, um, which is a little different from t- actually taking a shot to write out the whole script and mm-hmm. then going to try to sell it. But, um, but it happened, he wrote it right after, he, he, he set it up right after it happened, he finished it a year and some months later, got it to Charlize. She sort of wondered if she could do it for a while, and she and I had been working on a TV show together, loved collaborating with her. She's just a fantastic storyteller. You could tell she was a great producer, even though we didn't get to make that show. And she sent me the script uh, just to ask what I thought about it uh, and you know, really kind of wondering if... She, if, if um, I had any thoughts on whether she should do it. And I gave her a lot of notes just as a friend and um, said she should definitely do it because I just, I, I, we could talk about what I thought was um, just compelling about it. Um, and she liked the notes and on that call, and I still to this day, she's always funny about, I don't know if she knew she was going to do this on the call, but she asked me to direct it on the call, which was not part of the pretense of the call, you know, the the auspices of the call, and I said yes right away, and um, and yeah, then I then I wondered, oh my god, why? I really didn't believe, I didn't know why, I just didn't think I would be at the top of Charlize Theron's list for anything, that, that you know, much <laughs> less, I mean, I worked with her as a TV person, but I, I don't know why, she just seemed like such a you know, different stratosphere, and, um, and she had some instinct that uh, yeah, it might work out, and the thing I said to her that um, that I, I pitched to her as as a reason is I thought, despite she was just not sure how she would connect. You know, she knew she had a lot of differences politically with Megyn Kelly and um, took a lot of issue with with some things that Megyn Kelly had had said and stood for. Um, and I, for me, growing up, I grew up in a conservative family in New Mexico. My dad was a defense. Uh, industry worker, very hawkish, you know, and um, and you know, my a lot of people in my family are very, very conservative, t- former Texans, but in New Mexico, um, and 
I just thought I would like to make a film about sexual harassment that my family would watch, where they probably wouldn't make a, you know watch a film that was driven by feminists or progressives or. And because of Megyn Kelly and Gretchen Carlson and other women they might recognize, I thought, well, I might actually be interested in this. So I said, Charlize, it's a chance to broaden this conversation. And if you, I said to her, too, and she said, I'll do it if you direct it. And I said, well, I'm not directing it unless you partner up, <laughs> like really partner up with me as a producer. Because um, there's no way I'd get away with just being, you know, some like a male-centric, you know, driver of this project. Um, and I needed her to have that to, sh- to connect to that point of view of what it's what it's like being a woman uh, experiencing this and coping with it. And so we both sort of agreed to have each other's to have each other's backs, but also to keep each other honest about <laughs> politics, sexual politics, all that stuff. And it that was an it was an incredible. Um, Coming together over this, and over by the way, over this great script. The script was excellent mm-hmm. from the get go, and she knew that even though she was hesitant about the the part. She, it was a really well written script by Charles Randolph. So what? Um, so we'll talk a little bit because we know she's a terrific actress. I mean, we'll talk a lot more sure. about that a little later. But what did she do with producer to save the project? Because it's really behind the scenes as her producer mind is the one that made this happen. Yeah, oh man. Not only, she brought us together, obviously, Annapurna, Charles, myself, and then helped uh, um, connect with the various other actors that got interested in it right away. She knew Nicole, she knew Margot. Um, I kind of brought John in because I had worked with him before, but I, I think many of the other stars, especially, she would she would make those calls, which are, you know, hard to, to it's hard to get people on the phone, and she, Charlize can get people on the phone. And she, um, she also, um, I always talk about producing, having produced some films that I don't direct. The biggest part of producing is keeping films together, and every, there's so much entropy and outward forces to blow up films and, blow, and make people uh, want to, you know, it's just hard to keep it together. Just be, and she became... That, that nucleus, that gravity at the center of it that everybody seemed to want to orbit, you know, um, and whenever there was pressure, and the biggest pressure, which was, a, which was widely reported at the time, is we, two weeks before we started shooting, um, Annapurna pulled out, just completely pulled out all, you know, financing, distribution. We were shooting in two weeks. I had this, all, this whole cast. I mean, the list of incredible cast members, they were almost already all in place. They had a great script. We had agreed upon a budget. We were still at that budget. It was reported that there was a budget issue, but that, I feel like that might have been somebody trying to come up with a story that explained what happened, but it was definitely not budget. We, we were exactly what we were greenlit at, and um, Charlize called her reps, called you know everybody she knew. She had worked with Braun Studios. Braun had already come in for a little tiny bit of backstop financing, and, but she got Aaron Gilbert, who runs Braun, to agree to cash flow while we were just figuring out who could who could be our new studio and within 72 hours the team all of us you know talking about really with Charlize's leadership and again that 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 nucleus that centered thing of like we're just going to do this like this is not this is not it's not possible to stop us that was that was Charlize you know and she's fierce and she um we got it together within 72 hours hit our start date hit our our wrap date finished every day early, 
kept all those actors, kept all the incredible crew. I mean, there's Colleen Atwood, the incredible Academy Award-winning costume designer, Barry Ackroyd, who shot many great films, like a ton of incredible, all the entire Coen Brothers production team, line producer, first AD, uh, UPM coordinators, the, our, the whole production unit was, were all Coen. These are people who could do any other film today. You know, they could have stopped our film right then and just said, you know what, it's looks kind of iffy. <laughs> How many films have survived having the entire everything pulled out from under them two weeks before shooting? None that I know of. And they all hung with us. And again, I credit the producing of Charlize. The main thing about her, and we, you know, we flipped to the actress side. I mean, have you seen the movie Monster, her Oscar winner? I mean, she has a tendency, she has her own persona, but it's stripped away. You don't see yeah. a, a And I saw the same thing for this movie, where I didn't see a shred of Charlize. I saw mm-hmm. the character she created. But what was it like developing character with her? Because Megyn Kelly was, is not embraced by everybody. Right. Like, how did she right. approach drawing this character for her? Well, you know... It, there's a little more of her in this character, uh, and she's said this in some of the Q&As she's done, is that um, she, did, she had so many places of difference, but she, the key, some of the key elements, she really related with a woman who's, who's strong and uh, who's opinionated and who is kind of intense sometimes and gets labeled for, doing, for being ambitious and all those things. As having sharp elbows, I remember hearing that phrase, sharp elbows, and all the time talking about Megan and the research. And if that was a man, it wouldn't be called sharp elbows. It would just be called, like, oh, the guy's, the guy's tough and, and strong. And, and, you know, like, and so Charlize liked connecting with that and having something. She found things in common with her is the real answer. She found a lot of things that she had in common with her. And she, I almost feel like so much so that she had to make sure she could convince herself when she looked in the mirror there was a big difference, you know, and so that was why we changed her face. You know, she, mm. she wanted to um, try pretty extensive prosthetics to uh, con- kind of shapeshift herself into, into Megyn Kelly, and she, the way she put it, I really liked it. It was so specific, and I was like, oh, of course we're going to do this, because it's, you're, there's a lot of reasons not to do that, it's really time-consuming uh, for the shoot day. It's a two-and-a-half-hour minimum yeah, time in the chair. It's a tremendous amount of time in prep, testing all the different makeup looks. And, um, and it can be very uncomfortable. You, you can shut you down because you can, you know, I've had this happen on the comedies where the prosthetics will get sweaty and come apart, and then you have to, it's just like slow. It's just slow, right? So... As a director, you're kind of going. Oh, she looks a lot like her already. Do I really need? Do I really need any prosthetics? And she said, "I I'm going to nail her accent. I'm going to get her accent down. I'm going to get her vibe down. I'm going to get her body language down. But if I if I do all that and I look in the mirror and all that's coming out of me and it's my face, it's just not going to work for me. For her as a performer, just that, that the performance would feel." Weird to her. I want to look in there. I want to look at myself in the mirror and see Megan Kelly. Boom. We just, just committed to it, you know, on the spot and said, okay, let's get into it. And we got the, this world class prosthetics guy, uh, makeup designer, uh, Kazuhiro, Kazuhiro. And he, um, he did Gary Oldman um, for Darkest Hour, and he's, he's phenomenal. My favorite thing about him. Is he retires after every film, <laughs> got, and so the lore is, yeah, we got him out of retirement, and he came out. Of, that's what happened. He was retired supposedly. We had to go in. 
really lean on him you know, to get him out. I was like, that is so smart. I'm going to retire after every film. <laughs> that was a good move. But uh, he's brilliant, and he, he got her and John Lithgow, John Lithgow to those places where... Uh, where they got to, and it's incredible makeup. Um, obviously, she, she's a gateway to the movie. She opens up where she talks to the audience through the fourth wall. Uh, yeah. You're using Big Short. Um, takes us through the uh, Fox News channel uh, doing this story. How was it for you using that as your opening to kind of blend this comedy and drama mixing with this kind of That's style? That's a really, really good question. Tone was tough on this to figure out, and that was not always the opening. That used mm-hmm. to come, I think, about... I don't know. I think it's scene 44 on the script list of 250 scenes. Um, and we moved it up for two reasons. One, to set the tone and to put it with titles always gives you a little bit of license to be more stylized when you're running it under the title. So it was playing later, but it was sort of a, it was a very big short. You know, Charles Randolph, their screenwriter, wrote the big short. So it, that was clearly part of the heritage of the style, but it felt a little smart-assy too much to, like it, to just stop and do it and because of those films have done it, especially Big Short, but other films since and, and before too. I, I watched Thank You for Smoking recently and I was like, wow, Jason Reitman was on this, this vibe a long time before. Um, and it just didn't feel quite, and Charles was with me the whole time, so we, it wasn't me overruling his script, it was him going yeah, I, I think we need to think about how to do less of that um, kind of so in your face of breaking the fourth wall, so so stylized, since maybe it's not quite as fresh. And the performances were so good, we didn't really feel like we had to try so hard to be entertaining and, and kind of glib. And so we moved it up. And But the second reason was that um, I always, I've really come to appreciate the, what, that what I as a film watcher I really love when the, the predicament is clear enough quite early. <laughs> like, I think I studied a lot of Hitchcock when I was doing in film school, just how quickly you go, wow, this is, this is rough, and these characters are designed to clash in a certain way, and this is a real predicament. How's that going to work out? So for me, that having Megan take Trump on in the primaries uh, about sexu- how, how horribly, all the horrible things he'd said about women... She's the rising star at Fox. He's the new cash cow ratings guy for Fox. Mm-hmm. They're now at, a, at odds with each other. They're both in a predicament. She's especially in a predicament by taking him on. But maybe even more importantly, Fox is at a predicament. Like, who's, which side are we going to go? Mm-hmm. And I remembered that when she did that. I was like, wow. That's just like the, everybody in the control room was like, what's she doing? Like, that is a big deal for their superstar to take on Donald Trump uh, and accuse him of being that horrible to women and potentially put a chink in his armor, you know, uh, in relation to Hillary and, all, you know, like it was a, I don't know, it was a big deal. So I thought that's a predicament. That's something I could start the movie with. And then the, the, the tour had always been tied to her because the, her giving the tour explains why she has to pay attention to Roger over how to handle mm-hmm. the Trump thing. So it all kind of came up and clicked, and we've screened for months in old orders, uh, different orders, and when that finally happened, the, the audience instantly felt like they were 
you're, they were connecting to what we were up to a lot sooner, and it, and it just yeah, got off to a rock. You mentioned start. sending out the predicament early with Hitchcock. The Rudy Beckier scene, which was funny, the internal monologue while she's being harassed, but you quickly see the consequences immediately after when she yeah. was fired. Yeah, and mostly, I'm so gratified by the reaction to that scene. Women often come up to us and say, oh, that's so, I'm so glad someone is given a voice to what that feels like trying to placate. The, her story is incredible, and I'll tell you a couple of details about it, but trying to placate some guy who has put himself too far out and, and put her in an impossible situation, but still she can't, she has to still play the game somehow to survive. And it's just so heartbreaking to watch her have to do that. But it's it, what I find so gratifying is men coming up to us, and often with the women saying, "He's, you know, I'm so glad you made him watch that because now he knows what I face in these situations." Her story is so incredible. She, I'll just quickly just give you the highlights of it. I, we we could have we had a I shot more of her story, but because it, she wasn't the main character of the film, but I so she's a rising star at Fox. She got a three year deal after having already proven herself at CNN. She's just out of UCLA when she gets that U, that CNN job. She's an immigrant. She's fantastic on air. She goes, she's, because she's uh, Persian-Iranian, she's sent into Middle Eastern um, war zones and is just great. She gets a, this three-year contract. Six months in, this guy hits on her in a hotel bar. She thinks she's there for a promotion. She doesn't even complain but she, to Fox, but she tells her agent, he complains to Fox, and she's fired. And it's the end of her career. She was like going to be the next Christiane Amanpour. Like, that's how people talked about her. She's never worked in broadcasting again. That was in 2006, right? Mm-hmm. 2006. So her story is so incredible. Um, and, you know, uh, it's just, and I, I've gotten to know her a little bit. And I'm just, just uh, intensely moving. But that, that's, that scene actually was contentious in early forms with, the, with early, with some of our executives just wondered, is that really worth it? I'm like, I'm not making this film unless that scene's in. Mm-hmm. I was that intense about that. And that also leads to uh, Gretchen, because she's also now on the downside of her career, you know, stuck on yeah. daytime. So how did you, how do you and Nicole work together, Nicole Kidman, to kind of create the character of, you know, the fallen star? So glad to talk about that, because um, Gretchen has an NDA, right? She still, she still has to honor it. She got a settlement. You know, she got an apology, which was intense. That's why we make, it's a, I mean, rare, rare, rare and, and it was an, an intense fight to get it, and that she got it was a, but she also paid the ultimate price career-wise. Yes, she was. She had been somewhat relegated to a slightly less, but she was a broadcaster. And then she, because she started to complain about the way men were treating her, she gets fired, sues, jumps off that cliff, but, and, and gets the settlement but can't talk about it, right? We didn't know when we made the film how much this was going to be so on the surface. Ronan Farrell's great book mm-hmm. about... Um, the Weinstein thing and how his stuff was all suppressed at NBC has now led to NBC letting all the accuser women out of their NDAs. And now Gretchen herself has asked Fox to do the same just the past couple of weeks, right? And indie, forced NDAs and forced arbitration are the absolute you know, worst set of conditions for someone who has to experience harassment because you... There's just no good recourse. You know, you're not, you're probably not going to win because enforced arbitration it always slightly favors the the corporation as compared to a jury trial, and you're going to be stuck signing some kind of NDA, which prevents you from warning other women about mm-hmm. the harassment. So it's like the perfect storm mm-hmm. of 
I was going to, I won't swear, but it was the perfect storm of badness, you know, and <laughs> so um, it was, uh, yeah, so, so I didn't know, and the ending of the film was not originally ending with her saying, yeah, you won all this, you got the apology, but you're going to be muzzled, and she says, maybe. Mm. That was not the end of the script. <laughs> That's the end we got to, again, through trying a lot of different things. It's also a great tribute to Nicole Kidman. She's so smart. Because she signed an NDA, we didn't get her story. We got Megan's story through her own book and a bunch of other accounts. Sure. Gretchen's story couldn't be uh, captured in detail because she couldn't ca- talk to us. We tried, and she just couldn't do it, right? So we had to figure it out. Well, Nicole, just just great character design and character intuition, just kept saying, I think you need more, I, can't, I think you need more. And Charles kept going back and writing new stuff for her. And we, in the scene where she says... Um, They'd say, I jumped off a cliff. Why wouldn't women support me? She's, I wouldn't, I can't call Megan because I wouldn't take her call. Roger Pitts us again. We shot that about um, two months ago or three months ago. I don't know. Like that was a one day reshoot, all pushed by Nicole because she just said, I think Gretchen is so righteous in what she did and jumped and really risked everything. And I don't think you're telling that clearly enough. So I, that's that all of how good Gretchen's arc through the whole story is. Uh, he, it was always good in the script, but. A huge amount of it was because Nicole Kidman said, I just think you should keep going. And that's, that's how the whole movie worked. I had these fantastic, Charles and I are men, we get so much, but only so much, you know. And the rest of it was relying on incredible women collaborators who pushed us and tested us and, and made us answer for everything we were trying to do. Uh, and and that, was, um, that, that was a great example of Nicole doing that. Yeah, I mean, I, the scene where Gretchen's with the lawyers and we're seeing the clips of her being sexually harassed on air in front of millions of viewers <laughs> yeah. really affected me. And the quotes, um, this gave a very visceral reaction with the audience. What was the challenge of creating the sequence? Because you have to you mix archival footage mm-hmm. and this to try to tell that part of the story. The, you know, we had a huge head start on that because the Internet had created a meme for us <laughs> uh, <laughs> of, a, of a montage of those those clips plus a bunch of other ones. Um, and it, I, it struck me that you could just... Uh, it's what she would play, f- you know, to her lawyers. She was tr- In the scene, she's trying to convince those two great lawyers to uh, get on her case, I mean, to, be, to, to support her case. And um, so, of course, that's what she would play is the, the sort of montage of it. And once we locked on, you know, which segments of the, the kind of the stuff that had been around on the internet, you can, using fair use um, protection, Mm. you can use clips like that without permission and without paying for them. But the trick was we had to stick Nicole Kidman into those scenes. Mm. Um, In the original draft, Charles had an interesting idea of like showing actors playing them when they weren't on camera, but when you cut to footage, it would still be the real people. And I was like, I think it'll be really interesting to have Nicole had pasted in there, and I had already done quite a bit of that in the Sarah Palin movie where I had Julianne Moore as Sarah Palin talking to Katie Couric from archival footage or Brian Gibson from archival footage. And um, I've done it quite a bit on on films. And you actually can do that as long as you're faithful to the original intent of the clip, what, 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 what the clip was and what it represented and when it was actually... You know, recorded at the time of the Sarah Palin campaign or tr- Megan 
taking on Donald Trump or, in this case, Fox and Friends, as long as you're not misusing it in a kind of deep fake mm. way. That's the, we didn't even, I'd never heard of the phrase of deep fake until you know, when we were doing it before, but now it's, you, people can manipulate footage for the, and make it say something it's not meant to say. That does not protect it by fair use. If you get into that and you're starting mm. to mess with it, then you, you would be vulnerable to a pretty serious lawsuit. Um, and so that was the issue. I've, I've incredible same VFX guy I've had forever, Dave Johnson from Pacific Vision, done every film I've ever done, and now we've gotten kind of good at this this one particular thing. We know how to stage it, how to the green screen, how to set it all up, how to match the lenses, match all the lighting, match everything. And it's not it's not it's not that hard, but it's not quite as straightforward as it, you think. And Dave Dave made it easy. Now, Kayla, played by Margot Robbie, is a composite character of a yes. few women. Um, it's, I found her fascinating. She's an evangelical Christian who's so sexually open-minded, just wants to voice a conservative hope, her fresh and ambitious, and but she doesn't know she's walking the alliance then, even though Gretchen warns her. Yeah. Uh, what was the approach to developing the character with Margot? Um, so Charles had done some amount of research and had written the scenes pretty similar to how they ended up turning out. I really wanted to go in and, and talk to as many actual people from Vox confidentially as we possibly could. And um, Margot, when I met with Margot, a lot of her questions were, how, you know, why is she like this? Why she, and Margot is such a nerd. It's, she, she doesn't seem like someone who would be a nerd, but she's a full-on nerd. She, ha- <laughs> she has every page cornered, all these colorful um, little tabs on the side. She's gotten every line broken down. She does all the backstory in her mind, even if there's not enough. And she just kept asking questions about, uh, from me and Charles about where she came from and who she was based on. She then f- extends forward. She said she knows what Kayla's doing at age 60. <laughs> like, she knows her whole life. I was like, who are you? <laughs> what, what, why are you making me pay attention to all this? And, and Because that's what gave her the specificity the, um, the heart of it, the, the price she had to pay by being, you know, sort of, sort of not getting what she was walking into, all those things. And that was really what she did to prepare was just, she just talks about it. I don't really rehearse, I don't block scenes in, in prep. Uh, we do block them out, you know, we do run through them once you have the sets and the props and everything that you need to figure out where things should go. But I love to talk through the scenes in great detail, answer everyone's questions. And she just, she just uh, went deep into it, and on that day, I, we, we, this is one interesting thing about how that scene was shot, was that we started shooting with a style where the cameras are shooting opposite each other. Very often you shoot one direction, sometimes with multiple cameras, and then turn around and shoot you know, the other direction, because it's usually the case that lighting only looks good from one direction. So you put the camera where when I was, t- I used to teach cinematography at USC and I would always say, okay, it's the first decision. Where's the camera? Where's the actor? Light to that, you know, because, because the, the direction of the light only matters in relation to where the camera angle is. So, but Barry Aykroyd is, does this a lot as a doc, former documentarian. And I, and I really wanted to do this too, which is light it so it looks good from every direction, but especially from the from the other side of the axis between if if we're here, the key lights are behind us. And in this case, they're, this, we're lit from the front, but in, our, in most of the scenes where we're doing this, the cameras are here, but the lights are on the other side. And so you have a back cross key situation, which, you know, your, your backlight is my key light. Anyway, technical, but... <laughs> um, 
So, but what that means practically is everybody's on camera all the time. There's no kind of off energy acting when you're off camera, which actors, even the great actors, sometimes save it for when they're on camera, mm-hmm. right? And so they're sort of giving the other camera, the, the other actor that's on camera, some rhythm, and some, but sometimes the rhythm's off because of that, and you're just tearing your hair out going, why isn't this working? And then you cut it together, and it works great, but in this case, you could see it live. It was like being in a play, and on that scene, unlike most of my other scenes, I, I used to be a camera operator, not a great one, but I was an okay one, and I... Didn't, I wanted to not have Margot have to go through that so many times. So I said, let's shoot a third camera so I don't have to back up and shoot that. I always start, I like starting from the inside, which is also a little unconventional. Start tight and get wider. Don't make Margot have to go through this a bunch of times by having to shoot these two cameras and then shoot it all again from some wide angle. Just give me the camera. I'll operate the wide shot. And so I was in that room with, you know, when she walks up and turns around, I'm the camera that's looking past her towards Roger, but I'm also the camera that's doing the, the wide geography shot, which turned out to be really important because the distance between them is really interesting and that composition is so important. I was so caught up in the scene, I think on the first take I forgot to recompose. <laughs> like I'm looking at Barry the DP like, oh, great idea, have the director operate the camera. <laughs> but, I, but I did, and then I kept, you know, and that way we could reduce the amount of time she had to go through that. And... Um, it was so intense and upsetting. There was a. This sounds sappy and um, I don't know if the right word is just kind of. It was. It was a, sometimes a very sappy set anyway because everyone was helping helping each other cope with it. But that day, they were all. Everyone just started hugging and saying, "It's okay. Are you okay? I'm okay. Are you okay?" Like it was really mm-hmm. hard to experience that, and I think it puts the audience members especially men who don't have any idea what that feels like in that room. And, you know, I felt like as a man, I thought I knew, understood uh, more of this than, than I realized I did. And that, that, that scene, even for me in that room, even, even though I knew exactly what was coming, was devastating, devastating and, and eye-opening. And um, that scene is really the mo- probably the most important scene in the whole film. And what was, what, did John have any concerns, let's go, about how he, to play that scene? He because... did, mostly just he knew he was going to be a horrible person, you know, he, and have to come out. So he talked to the women beforehand and explained, I'm going to come at you, but, you know, I'm, I, I just keep, keep in mind, John Lithgow in here, and not, it's not, you know, I'm, he's like the nicest guy on earth, John Lithgow. So he, was, he knew it was going to be dark, you know, and he, t- he, he tried to reassure them, but they, of course, good actors, no, just no. I, the more conflict, the more you're believable as my opposing force, my antagonist, the, the better. The stronger you are, the more intense. And he, what, what I love about how Roger is portrayed is that, um, and John got to this probably even more than we had planned, was how everybody we talked to, no matter what your politics said that Roger Ailes is one of the most charming, sometimes most generous, sometimes most coaching, mentory type guys you could ever meet. So it made the, the predation all the more dramatically, you know, affecting and creepy. And so John, got, I feel like he, you see him even laughing with Kayla so much at the beginning and kind of gets her jokes about Santa Claus and all that. Mm-hmm. And then he then even just the way he breathed while he was looking at her was, I don't know if I would have 
thought that was going to work, you know. So you, it gave us a range, a dynamic range to have him be so human to then also go all the way to a, an almost Jabba the Hutt kind of monstrosity, you know, towards the end. And that, of course, leads to the scene with uh, Megan and her, the confrontation. You should, someone should have warned us he was after more than legs. Yeah. How did you, how did you put that to Margot and Charlie? Because that really both sets their path for the rest of the movie. Yeah, and that one, that's an interesting scene because it's also the biggest indictment, you know, of, of Megan's character. But I think she even talked about it in her book as just a, uh, you know, a, a, a tough place for her. She, when she, she had been harassed 10 years earlier and she'd kept it, to herself because she thought for a long time that it was unique to her, right? And then now she's finding out, oh, a lot of other women are coming up with this. But she still feels guilty and terrible about um, not having spoken up. So in a way, as much as that scene is, Margot gets all the emotion, it's really from Megan's point of view because this this has come back to haunt her, this choice, right? And so... Um, that's how I asked Charlize to play it, is that you're not, you've been suppressing this ghost, you know, this, this, um, this decision uh, in a way, and you think that you can sort of exercise the ghost, the demon, by uh, doing the right thing now, but it's still not going to, you're still going to, it's still going to come at you, and especially in the form of a, you know, in the, in the, in the voice of a much younger woman who's, Taking this big risk and and uh, and has a you know a right to, to think that the generations before her would would give her a clue you know give her some help in navigating this and um, it's, it's a particularly it's again just great drama Charles they're both dynamics that Charles wrote for or they're both coming from such strong places and so it's just an excellent clash an excellent excellent predicament just within that scene. Um, and I didn't know, tonally, I didn't know how Margot was going to, I didn't know how emotional she was going to get because she has all these other emotional scenes to go mm. still, you know. But when she lost it and she didn't mean to, she, she apologized after when she started crying because it, it wasn't in the plan. Mm. <laughs> I said, oh, my God, that was, you don't have to apologize for that. That was incredible. And um, it ended up being, because it just, again, puts more guilt on Megan, right? So um, it turned out to be... And then you had the devastating moment where she's talking to Kate McKinnon, Kate McKinnon and Jess yeah. on the phone, which was yeah. one of those painful phone calls of her, you know. That's one of my... That was an amazing night. Margot did that in two takes, really a take and a half, because one of the cameras rolled out, in a way, on the second take. And that's, that's just... It was that amazing from... And it turned out it was a really good. It was because it started raining after that second take, and we had mm. to stop. That's all I got. She said, I could have keep, kept doing it. I was like, I bet you could, but I don't want you to have to do that. And, and it's raining, so... Um, and it was heartbreaking. Kate McKinnon, the night we shot at the restaurant outside on the street, Kate's in a little booth uh, with um, sound blankets all around her, just inside the restaurant um, with the microphone, you know, obviously. And, and um, we were playing the... I think we are playing... Yeah, we are playing the, her voice on speakers right next to... Oh, no, we're playing it into the phone. That's right. Playing Kate's voice into the phone to Margot. And I could hear that Kate was just totally... We'd already shot Kate's side, right? So she had been really emotional, too, when we shot her side. But now she was completely, just emotionally a wreck. She was sobbing. And so that's another example of... Even though it wasn't that thing where they're both on camera, Kate McKinnon 
went to such a um, an emotional space, uh, such a also a, a place of guilt and shame that she didn't help her friend more earlier. That Margot was completely fueled by it, and uh, it just—I don't know—just it was. I couldn't believe the level of emotion I was hearing through the my headphones, but that I knew Margot was hearing. Uh, you know, I we were all breaking down at the monitors. We were all getting very emotional, just really just because Kate was losing it so much. It must have been great, because Kate McKinnon is obviously very funny, can do improv, can read a script, but dramatic. It must have been great for you having that she had such a wide range of all your scenes. Yeah. She's a great actor, and um, she has that range. I like to cast people who are capable of being funny in very dramatic places, because then you just love them all that much more from those scenes like early when the bar and then in bed together. Margot turns out is a great comedian herself. She, she went right with Kate. I didn't know she could improvise as well as everything else she can do. She's a great improviser. They, they, she kept right up with Kate. And because we needed those scenes to be loose. Charles wrote great moments for them, but we, didn't want, we wanted them to be actually flirting with each other and actually getting to know each other and have it be plausible that this compartmentalized existence that Kayla is living, where she's sort of aware of her sexuality, but sort of not, and yet still works at Fox, and still a Christian, that we talked an awful lot about how how a person like that would be, and um, you know, it was just it was just an inc- it was just an incredibly good chemistry mm-hmm. between the two of them. And if we didn't have that, that would have never been plausible. And um, so, you know, I, I, I Kate, and that's why I cast people like Mark Duplass and uh, and and Rob Delaney as you know as Gil, and um, trying to think of all the many other great actors. That almost every one of them has done comedy mm-hmm. as well as drama. And I'm, I'm always uh, quick to try to cast people who are comedy capable, even in a drama. drama. Uh, I, was, I also found it interesting, you have Charlize looking back at her daughters, Gretchen looking back at her daughters, but the scene that really hit me is when Charlize realized she's victim W with the yeah. alphabet. Yeah. Uh, was that always how you wanted to kind of like go, that was going to yeah. be the climax of your film, yeah. just that little note? And... Yeah, and in real life, um, evidently Megan was one of the first people into Paul Weiss to kind of Pied Piper. So we, that's why we have her say, I, since I came and talked to you the first time that, you know, but, but since she did that first visit and was able to therefore reassure everybody to come in, she was super surprised that so many, so many women came forward. This, there had been the six women who had worked with Roger pre-Fox, and that surprised everybody, but it, that was substantial. But people thought maybe there was one or two more it's one of the great things about interviewing the real people. In the original script, the Murdochs were the one that gave Megan the names of the other women who might want to be called because they might have stories. We interviewed some people uh, who had worked there, and they said, no, it wasn't, it wasn't the Murdochs. There was a woman who still works at Fox while we were shooting. She still works there, so we can't tell you who she is. She's vulnerable. But there was a woman at Fox... Uh, who'd kept a list of people that even um, slightly had, had a hint of having been harassed by Roger because she herself had also been harassed. And she, like Megan, thought she might be the only person, but she had a list of people that if, if anybody actually is willing to come out and talk, I'm going to go talk to all these women right away. Mm. But there, so it was a very interesting... And it was the weather lady. That was the, that's how that part of the story... So we, we found out it was the weather lady. Then while we were shooting... 
we heard that the weather lady, Janice Dean, who we can now name because she wrote a book that came out in post-production while we were... So we, got, we sneak her name in. We found out about her right before when we shot one take where we used her name in case that happened. The rest of the time, she, we kept her anonymous to protect her. Then she, it announced she came out with a book. Then she did come out with a book, and it detailed what happened. So we were able to give a woman credit that she wasn't going to get for doing this, you know, one of the few ways that the women supported each other at that time um, was the weather lady, who Charlize points out, Megan points out, they confided in the weather lady because no one thought she was going to take their job, <laughs> which is such an amazing, weird irony of the situation. I found the, the, the loyalty scene where they're all wearing the Team Roger t- uh, t-shirts pretty funny. Uh, can can we remind me of the president who demands loyalty? Um... <laughs> uh, you know, as we know, the Fox News Channel is the infomercial network for the White House. My question is, what was your concern about how no much... politics here, right? <laughs> no, no, sorry, I can't. No, no. What, was it, what were the, your concerns about how much to infuse Trump into the story? Like, how much did you, did you yeah, want? Too a, much, too little? That's a really good question. Um, it was always in the script. And again, once I chose to move that scene up and start the movie with it, it was going to be pretty central... Um, there was even more of it. We at one time thought about putting the Billy Bush tape in the credits, uh, the, the grab him by the pussy scene, uh, you know, because we, we had that footage and we thought, well, that would be such a dark way to remind people that, that um, you know, that that all came out and that, that, that there was such a relationship throughout that whole year from 2015 when she busts him for all the horrible things he said in the primaries all the way to 2016 when Roger's fired for similar behavior. And yet Roger and, and Roger has backed Trump pretty intensively by the fall of 2016. And um, there's a singularity. And, it, you know, I was, we were talking about this just before. I've started to, to think about the, the problem of the pattern um, of men in powerful situations becoming so entitled to loyalty. And by loyalty, they mostly mean power loyalty, as in you, you work for me, you do, I help you, but you do everything I want, and you continuously back me no matter what and stick to my programs. In Roger's case, speak the words I give you. Don't question too much. Um, look the way I want you to look. He actually did micromanage their looks. Um, the, the dressing room scene is based on reality. There was actually... A uh, few women who told us that I don't. I never could tell if it, we didn't put it in the script because I couldn't tell if it was kind of lore to back the story. But there was someone called that they called the skirt Nazi, mm-hmm. who would um, require women to keep their skirts a certain, sh- you know, to make them shorter. Not in most dress codes, it's always about don't let your sh- skirt get too short. And at Fox, it was don't let your skirt get too long. And she. So the dressing room is based. That was all, it's all part of this, this kind of egocentric. It's not, it's not nearly as much about sex, the id, to, to misuse a, a kind of pop, pop psychology version of Freudian terms, but it's not id, it's ego. Because once the ego, the egotistical, narcissistic personality is at the center of that, then there's this entitlement thing. And you see it with Harvey's stuff, reading that Ronin book, and the, and the, she said the um, Megan Tuya and Jody Cantor book, and hearing about all the way these patterns go, it to me the thing that's consistent and Trump too is the 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 un the the the, uh, the sort of bottomless pit ego that needs to consume and and needs power 
And when, when a person like that doesn't get power, it's, I'm special, so I, I deserve power. Wait, you're, you're, you're not giving me everything I want, including sexual favors? That's your problem. Now I'm going to you know, punish you and smear your, you know, your character, assassinate your character and you know, demote you. All the things that... And it's so consistent. And I, I just am astonished. And so anyway, long answer to that's why Trump and Ailes are overlapped in the story. Well, I mean, the, uh, and it was interesting with the triumphant ending where, you know, we see the women win, but actually Ailes and uh, O'Reilly made more money than the women's victims. Yeah, yeah. Was there any concerns with how to end that? What we, you know... we went through a lot of versions of what the text cards could be, because um, they're important. People, mm-hmm. we found actually, we, we did, we did te- I liked to screen the movie a lot. I liked to see what people react to, what, what feels, in that case, what's, what's the cathartic way to... A button this. And we tried much more detailed, sort of where are they now, text cards, and they always seemed reductive compared to the, the, the layers and, uh, uh, that Charles came up with in the script and that the actors got to. They seemed simplistic. So we, the, we used to have, I think we had, I think the most cards we ever had were six, um, but they were always very specific about what happened to each person. And we all, I, I just, after, I just wanted it to be. You have to think about what, where each person is. You can look, I hope people go and look them all up on the internet. I hope you can provide your own because there's much more. And I just think reducing it to too uh, simplistic of a thing. But I thought something that has a dark irony to it, like that payment thing, was yeah. that's not trying to wrap up the meaning of the entire film. It's just pointing out this one thing. And then also, really importantly, to remind people, which I think we may all forget, that this happened a year before the Harvey News broke. Gretchen Carlson sued Roger Ailes, the most powerful media titan maybe ever, a year before and had really no chance of any wave. She thought, I think she did think it would happen, but no wave of women came and supported her, partly because the women who would were not Fox watchers. (laughs) And so she stepped out on her own. Then the other women do join her, but that was a year before. So we wanted to remind people that at the end of the movie, how risky that move was how much how much uh, how unlikely it was that they would succeed, and that we thought was worth uh, stating as an actual text text thing. Well, we do have time for a couple of questions. Uh, Hi, so I was just wondering. Um, I noticed that the film had a very documentarian style throughout, not only with the cinematography, but also with the voiceover from our three main characters. So I was wondering what really pushed you to craft the whole film in that direction. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, that's a good question. It's interesting you say the voiceovers because I see the voiceovers as the the, the style of the sh- of the shooting is definitely documentarian, but I feel like the voiceovers uh, um, made the made the the internal monologues, which you don't get in documentaries very often, more cinematic, more dr- dramatic. The reason we went for the documentary style is. Partly, I guess, because it's a, it's a style I've worked with uh, in most of my, certainly in Recount and Game Change, I've just, I just like the, the feeling of being in the room. I often actually would pitch these movies when I was trying to set them. I just want to be in the room where they made that choice to get Sarah Palin and then realized, oh my God, what have we done? <laughs> and that, the camera is almost meant to just be, it's a, very much a, a Barry Aykroyd and Paul Greengrass, there was a movie called Bloody Sunday, which I always mm. used, and United 93, and a bunch of other movies he does, um, where the camera's 
there, but it's almost like it didn't get the press pass to be in the perfect mm-hmm. position. It had to find some, some place, <laughs> you know, uh, and and shoot from a almost a camouflage place, you know, and and you and you do feel like as you do in good documentaries that the actors. That the, excuse me, the subjects of the documentaries, and in our case, the actors, forget that the cameras are there. And so it is a fly-on-the-wall kind of vibe. It's not so much a mind's-eye uh, thing, which I, I think there's a whole other way of shooting that I, I haven't done very much of. I'm trying to think of what films I might have done that a little more, where the camera placement is positioned to, to represent the psychology of the, you know, the point of view, the actual subjective camera, I guess you would call it. And in this case, I didn't. I wanted objective, but the the feeling sometimes, if in like just like in the great documentaries and very very accurate, is that all that operating in the elevator, being on Megan over Margot, and then just getting to rack focusing exactly. That's just we didn't plan that. That's just Barry, the operator, figuring out from feeling the scene what where to go. That feels less stagey and more. Like you're something is really happening in front of you, and you kind of lose track of it. And it's just a style that I, um, I feels more authentic somehow. There, it, it, I knew some of the film would be stylized, but I, I wanted the camera work to seem alive and spontaneous, and um, and that the but that the experience would be very much about putting the audience in their point of view and feel like you're you're experiencing it through Mar- from Margot's character's point of view, for example, in that scene. Um, yeah, so that's that's kind of that's kind of what what I was thinking when we did. And, I, and again, if you shoot this way, you can everybody's on all the time. It's three and the poor, the lighting people and the the set dressers are in such hell because I'm going to shoot. <laughs> I don't know where I'm going to shoot, and they don't know where. Oh, actually, where Barry's going to suddenly decide. He he would very often shoot over the back of someone and find expressiveness in the way you know. So that means the camera might be. You know, uh, so everything had to be dressed all the time. No, no video monitors or what, like things had to really be hidden, so you could just, you know, the actors could just feel like, oh, I'm here and everything I do is live, you know, and that's that made it better. Hi, thank Hi. you so much for being here. Um, so Glad my question feeds right into that is in dressing the set and also addressing how the actors are portraying these real characters, save for Kayla. How did you go about um, coaching them on their appearance or their interpretation of the characters' voices and body movements? And then did you have Mm -hmm. legal issues getting the right to use the logo for Fox on everything? Yeah. Yeah. So um, on on coaching them um, to, to channel their characters and then to also present the exterior of the characters... That's all them. I, I just I gave, I just say anything you need, any um, accent coach you want, any prosthetic person you want. Any we had the incredible hair people. Margot's hair is never Margot's hair. Every single bit of her hair is our wigs, right? Um, which which I never see. Even at, we never even had. Usually are going in and touching up digitally to hide wig. This is, our hair people were extraordinary. Um, and Morgan was was the hair lady and. Uh, the wardrobe, Colleen Atwood is just she just she not only was trying to match, she was just trying to t- you know push it just a little more towards expressing each character, and she just nailed every single and also made the fat suit for John and designed all his like so but that a lot of that just came one because that we were 
had done so much research and it was pretty easy to know what we were reaching for. But you never want to you never want to make matching the thing. You 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 want to get there and push for it. But if you get so obsessed with it, it can trip you up because you start to get perfectionist about let's say an accent so much so that. Uh, it's tough to perform because you're mimicking and you're and you don't want to do a caricature. So it's always a very interesting decision. How far do you go to matching? Um, we had a really interesting dilemma about that in the Bill O'Reilly character. Mm-hmm. So that's <laughs> that that is so close that people that lawyers were nervous about how close we got to matching Bill O'Reilly. <laughs> Maybe a little bit on Geraldo too, which I'm, I'm really happy we did that. And when you. I so love when people cut to Rudy, the, uh, the uh, insanity of that. <laughs> so, you know, I think audiences enjoy that you went there, and, and they enjoy, since you're making a film that's based on reality, that you took that seriously. But they also really want the actors to come through that and to, to add life and soul and layers and... If you if you restrict them too much to the match, you can you can outsmart yourself and and really mess up what the actor can do. In terms of the legal thing, um, you know, um, we well, what was the legal question again? What was, what? Fox News logo. Oh, Fox News logo. Yeah. So in that fair use thing that I was describing, which is a, an interesting legal area, are any lawyers in the room? Particularly <laughs> anybody who knows about fair use. Um, it's, a, it's an interesting thing, and, and I don't know how it evolved. I'd love to know the history of it, um, but it is for, for documentarians, for comedians. You know, when you're doing, when we're doing Borat or SNL or, you know, um, you can, in, when, in parody, you're especially protected and you can use a lot of fairies. But any film that has a, a demonstrable social value, a benefit that comes from making the film, if you, if you choose to use... Some some footage from Fox, and you want to recreate Fox. You actually have to match everything, including logos, including graphics, including things that are totally protected by copyright in every other situation, except this weird umbrella protection you get from fair use. One of the trickiest exceptions to the exception is music. It's very difficult to fair use music. I don't know how it is that that the control of music, uh, some, some great lawyers for musicians uh, over time, for songwriters and, and composers, have found ways to, to make it much tougher to, to um, sort of become benign pirates, you know, or pirates for good to, to take things through fair use. But, um, but you have to, logos, in the first film, Recount, we sometimes would try to, what they call, Greek out the logos and fake them. And on this, by the time I did this game change, they said, no, no, you have to match. You can't use, you have to use the real Fox logo. You have to use, you have to recreate the history of it. In our film, there are dozens of monitors in every shot on the newsroom. And almost every moment, those are the actual scenes that were, I mean, the actual news uh, broadcasts that were going at that date that were the scene. So we had to put all that in. That wasn't just magically showing up just because we were recreating July 15th of 2016, you know, it ha- whatever was happening on July 15th, we had to come, we had, so we had this giant document that nearly killed all of us. We called it the Megalodon, or <laughs> the Meg for short. Now, wherever we were in the scene, we would say, okay, on this monitor, and there would be this whole stack of things, and we had it all, you know, banked up in computers to feed 
to all those different monitors, but they, we had to match all that. So we had to either, and sometimes we were recreating it with our own actors and putting them in to the shows they would have been doing, Gretchen Carlson, or in other cases we were taking other footage that had other newscasters and just making sure we had the right ones up. And if it was wrong, it, you know, it would be problematic. So we had, it, was, it was imperative that we, that we um, become good pirates. Well, I mean, Bombshell, the terrific film, has given voice to the women's experience of sexual harassment, but I think more importantly, makes the audience understand and feel, which is a thing I have not seen on the screen before. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much for coming back and sharing this film with us. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.